All right, guys, let's take a seat. Guys, so good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for that worship, guys. It's just, just great choices, just great music. Thank you so much. Guys, we are finishing off this week um, the, the, the series we've been walking through, a short series called Dismantling Myths of the Modern Mind. And the goal of this series has been simply to say, and, and for those of you who've been here the last couple of weeks, you, you know, you're kind of sick of hearing it, but just, just basically to say that for many Christians, many people, even in the church, we, we simply, for many, just, just drink the cultural water of our time. And we, we, we get drawn into many things that are, uh, are the norm, um, things in the area of, of sexuality, of, of how technology kind of plays a role uh, in our lives and things like that. And so what I'd like to talk about today, and I'm just going to throw the landmines out and then try to tiptoe through them, is dismantling politics. And by the end, you will know exactly who to vote for. And no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, now, I'm just going to say a few words, and what I'd appreciate it, for, maybe for the unity of the church, that you do not make any audible responses to the words. That, but but we, because we live in an outrage culture. We live in an outrage culture. And, and I can go online and see many of my friends who call themselves Christ followers, who say fundamentally he is king of kings and lord of lords. And I can see the things that are posted in response to politics and go, do you really fundamentally believe that? Because it seems like you're on shaky ground when it, when it comes to some of the topics that we find online today. Taxes. Ukraine. Russian interference. So what I'm going to find out right now is who actually watches and follows the news. <laughs> Triggered. NRA. Abortion. Soji. Transgender rights. Identity politics. Religious right intersectionality, woke, <laughs> alt-right conservatives, fundamentalists, evangelicals, impeachment, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and obviously, the last one I will leave you with, Donald Trump. Guys, I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Hit town your phones. As you know, you go to cachurch.info. You can go to sermons. Hit town center and all the texts I'll be reading from, um, all the points that I'll be making uh, will be on there as well. The issue of politics is not new. Everyone who has ever lived in a civilization has had to deal with politics. Anyone who has tried to follow Christ faithfully, follow God faithfully, be a person of faith has had to deal with the dichotomy, possibly, of living out faith and living under government. I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word, and we are going to read, I will read to you, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod, known as Herodians, to trap Jesus into saying something for which he would be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. 
And when they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Whose image is imprinted on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would want to say to us this morning. There are not too many things in our day and age that don't fall under the canopy of political conversation and, and do not cause uh, our, our backs to get up and, and anxiety and for many um, depression than the conversation of politics. So God, I pray you would speak to our hearts and our minds this morning as we look at your word and find perspective. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can take a seat. There is a, uh, a lack of civility, to put it mildly, when it comes to the area of, of, of politics. And for many, we would, we would say that the entire arena of politics feels uncomfortable, and even that as Christians, there's, there's a discomfort with the issues and, and, and tensions that come up. We live in an age of of vilification, and we're quick to do it, of of demonizing people. And as we see in today's text, this is nothing new. The the question specifically, how do we live today as Christians, as believers in in God, but ruled by secular government? And and, and it's not by accident that, that we feel a tension. We should never feel perfectly at home. That's riddled throughout scripture that you and I, if we see the bigger perspective, if we see ourselves as proclaiming as we have been this morning, that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords should never feel completely at home with the political situation, should never feel politically at home with any political party. Some have gone as far to say we should always feel out of place. And that things are not quite right. And that if a Christian does feel right at home with any political party, there might be a problem. It's getting quiet real quick. Some of us who have been around for a long time and and many who've been around uh, longer than myself remember in Canada, more so in the States, that Christianity used to have some clout. With it, it used to mean something. We we were the those who who held on to kind of the more the morality, the the traditional understanding of marriage, the the belief in a in a sustaining God and a and a belief in in absolutes. But now that's seen as an attack on freedom. In the modern environment of politics, one of, one of the reasons there's a few reasons for this, is that it's believed that faith ought to be private. You can go to your meetings. You can go to your Sunday hour and a half. You can sing your songs declaring as much as you want that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of the... Paint a beautiful picture, but just don't bring that into the public square. Just keep that out there. The lines have been drawn and they're drawn in the last decade, I'd say, more deeply than they've been drawn in a very long time. You are in, you are out. And Christians have drawn this line deeper than many. We end up seeing what what Tim Keller calls the mushy middle in that where we once were comfortable as as Christians, as the church, we were kind of this under this umbrella of safety. Once that umbrella has been moved aside, many don't want to be stuck out in the rain. So they'll make their way wherever that umbrella goes, wherever the safety goes. This kind of Christianity that used to protect by the the fact Christianity, it was once accepted part of our 
culture, but it is not that way anymore. Faith is now polarizing. It now draws a line in the sand. And so we find ourselves in this, this tension with, with a foot in the reality of our political climate, but also a foot in the reality of our allegiance to Christ. It's always been the case for Christ followers. It was a situation brought before Jesus in Mark 12, like we read. Jesus has been making a name for himself in several ways. He's been healing, but he's also been flipping tables in the temple. Okay, so there's people who are on his side and people who think they're on his side. I'm not sure if I want to be on his side. And, and people who, who have a lot of questions for him, especially the religious elite. They've got a lot of questions for Jesus. You're going to go into the, the temple in Jerusalem and in a mad fit, start flipping tables and yelling at us that we don't make your father's house a den of thieves. You've got some questions. We've got some questions for you that you need to answer. What authority do you think you have in doing this? And so we have a handful of different people who come to Jesus and you read the gospels or you go see God's bell or whatever, whatever it is, however you know about Jesus, you know that people come to him over and over and over again and test him with questions. In this case, we have the Pharisees, the guys who drew the box, who said, you can be inside, you are outside. These are the, these are the religious rules. And we're going to ask you questions. If you get them right, you're welcome to stay in. If you get them wrong, you are so out. And the whole world will know. Everyone in our culture will know that you're out. And then we have this group called the Herodians who also come. These guys are politically different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees want nothing to do with Rome. The Herodians are like, go ahead, pay your taxes, just keep the peace and let's get whatever we can out of Rome. And they were called the Herodians because they, they were devout to Herod, the puppet king of Caesar, who was over Judea. So we, this is a bipartisan approach to Jesus. Two guys in groups in different parties saying, we've got a common enemy, let's go towards him because he's causing problems. The very fact that they've come together shows the, the kind of desperate measure, measure of, these, of these religious leaders and these Herodians. And they come with a very specific purpose. They don't really want an answer. At least not a good answer. It's, the text is very specific. They come here to trap him. The language in the Greek is actually the idea of setting a trap for a bird. Like we are going to lay this trap and just, just we're just going to wait. You just, you just say something to get yourself in that trap. And the question they bring is a good one. This idea of worship and politics and how they work together. They come up with this great question on taxes. And here's the thing you notice immediately. They don't want Jesus to explain anything. Don't, don't, don't just give us a yes or no answer, Jesus. We don't need nuance. Don't give us nuance. You got 10, we just need a 10 second sound bite. What do you think on this topic? So we know where to slot you, Jesus. Sound familiar? This was the, the big political question of the day where there was worship of Caesar going on, where you paid your homage to Caesar. You paid your taxes to Caesar. But like Today, when someone becomes famous, we, we want to get a very straightforward answer on some political questions so we know where to peg them. Where do you stand on abortion? Don't explain it. Just give us an answer so we know what category you belong in. Where do you stand on the transgender debate? Don't, we don't want nuance. Don't waste our time with explanation or discussion. All we need is a word or two so we know how to categorize you. One of the great barricades of our political decision-making today is the unwillingness to engage in nuance. I would say it this way too. One of the great barricades of political dialogue today 
is the unwillingness to engage in nuance. And that is true to the far left and to the far right. And most of the middle. The issues and the candidates are far more than two-dimensional. The issues need discussion. And we see these traps set every day in the news. What do you think about this issue with the goals and the traps and everything categorized? In, in, chapter, in chapter 12, verse 14, they say, Teacher, we know how honest you are. You're impartial. You don't play favorites. They, I love the way they butter them up. It's like, oh, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus sees through, through their hypocrisy. He says, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. I have an image of a, a coin. Well, wow, do I ever. That is massive. Wow, let me get out of the... That is a big one. The tax they were talking about was what's called the pull tax. It wasn't a tax on goods. It was, it's, not, it's not eating at a restaurant or buying a pair of shoes. It's not adding to that. It was a pull tax. You were literally paying a tax for the luxury of living under Roman rule. For living under the thumb of Caesar, you were paying for it. Literally for being alive, you were paying a denarius. This is a denarius with Tiberius who, who ruled... Uh, the empire from AD 14 to about 37. So this could very well be the silver coin that was held up. Well, not the actual picture we have here, but there could have been a version of this coin that was held up in front of Jesus. And this was not just used all over the kingdom. This was specifically given the right of the Roman emperor to, to stamp this coin. It belonged to him ultimately. It came from him and it was meant to go back to him. Who's on the coin? I love the way Jesus plays this. What's, the, what's on a coin again? Whose face is on that again? Can I see one of those? Who, whose name is that again? He asks a, a harmless question. And those who are, are talking to Jesus, they think they got him. What's he going to do now? We've got him. It's, it says Caesar. So now he's put himself into a corner. And Jesus gives them an answer that they do not see coming. His, his fundamental answer to them is stop trying to compartmentalize your life. Don't compartmentalize your life if it's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you know the Psalms, if you know the declaration of the Hebrew scriptures as you come to me and you try to hold up, uphold the law in the same way you can't divvy up God and what you do with your finances, God and what you do with sexuality, with your sexuality, you cannot divvy up God and what you do politically. The fundamental question is not that, that will affect every interaction with us politically is not who does this money belong to, but who do you belong to? That frames everything. Now, some of you, if you've attended here for a while, you know that one of my favorite texts, and you're going to hear it again, but it just, there was a reason that the early church memorized this text. In Colossians 1, which is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, he writes this beautiful text that was, he may, very well may have been quoting a hymn of the day or some sort of creed to form the mindset of early believers. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The imprint of God, the image of God is on him. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. 
Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he, was, he was, has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. What a powerful text that he lays on this small church under the thumb of Rome. And what he's saying is this. Christ is the ruler of what you see and what you don't see. He's the ruler of the living. Hey, he's also the ruler of the dead. He's ruler over everything you see in the sky and everything below your feet. He's the ruler where you worship together and he's the ruler of everything outside of that. So Christ is our first political affiliation. To call oneself a Christian is a political statement. When we say Lord of Lords, that is a political statement. He is above every other person who would call themselves a Lord, a president, a prime minister, a king. To say that I belong to Jesus and recognize him as God, as my good shepherd, my my king is a political statement. And it is the political statement above all other political statements if you are a Christ follower. Theologian Jonathan Lehman, who's a pastor of a church called Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., says this. He says, the local church is a political assembly. Indeed, the church is a kind of embassy, only it represents a kingdom of even greater political consequence to the nations and their governors. And this embassy represents a kingdom, not from across geographical space, but from across eschatological time, meaning all time. The Apostle Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his, his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. That is our political slogan. Come back to God. That is our political slogan above all others. That is our first political slogan. Job. And when we get that first part right, that, that, faith, that, that, that faith is our first ap- political affiliation, we get the next part right, and that is that our faith protects us from panic. My goodness, go on Facebook and see the panic. The panic of the situation of the world right now. And, and we're not, I'm not even bringing in coronavirus or World War III, although that falls in there too. Just the fear of where we are politically. Politically, I've, I've got a picture here of, of Augustine in, in, in August of 410 AD, the world was crushed because the Roman empire had fallen to the barbarians. The unconquerable city had been conquered. The eternal city, as one Christian alive at the time proclaimed the city to which the whole earth fell has fallen. Yes. Thanks, Buzz. 
the greatest, richest nation with the greatest influence, the greatest military might, believed to be the most powerful, powerful, unstoppable country, empire, had fallen. And many Christians at the time believed that this established kingdom was going to be the tool of the kingdom of God. So many Christians, when the kingdom of Rome fell, believed that it was, oh, what do we say? Is it the end times? That was 1,500 years ago. Every generation of Christians, every generation of the church thinks we're in the end times. Especially when we place our faith in earthly governments and people. And because the Christians of the day put so much trust in the empire, their devastation was massive and it needed to be dealt with. Surely it must be the end times. And so St. Augustine or St. Augustine, depending on your church background, he took up his pen or his Mac Pro and started writing. Probably a pen. And he wrote a book that, that has been an amazing influence on the church and Christian thinking ever since, the city of God. The entire point of which was to remind Christians, remind the church that they belong to a greater empire and that the kingdoms of earth will come and go, and, but the gates of hell shall not prevail. And that we should not put our trust in men and in their armies. So yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you must render to God what is God's because Caesar's will come and go. Whatever political affiliation you find yourself a part of, it will come and it will go. But the city of God, the kingdom of God is eternal. So don't get your citizenship messed up. We don't hold two passports. We hold one passport. It'll cause you to, to panic, cause you to forget your first political affiliation. Don't put your trust in men or princes. I read earlier in Psalm 146. Don't forfeit your passport. Our, 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 our first political affiliation will protect us from, from panic, from political panic, but also our faith frames our political interaction. Oh, if the church could get this part. If we could understand how much our faith needs to frame the way we interact with other people when it comes to politics. It is very possible it is very possible that in the next few years in Canada, in the U.S., in Britain, in the Western world, Christians will lose a lot of status and a lot of influence. A, a voice at all, even, even a measure of freedom to worship, it could come. And if that happens, then we will join the ranks of the majority of Christians in the world. It's true. We will join the ranks of the saints that have gone before us who understood what it meant to be under the thumb of government. So how do we move forward with that? Many have chosen fear, which leads to rage. But that's not what we're called to. The rules of the government that we affiliate with are love and grace and forgiveness. These are the rules of our first political affiliation. Love for God and love for others. We find our hope and our joy in our affiliation with Christ and, and his rule of grace in all our interactions with others, regardless of topic. And here's the thing, and, and you see this, this everywhere. 
Unless we are overcome by the love of God, we will be overcome by the fear of man. Unless we are overcome living in, breathing in and out the love of God and the grace and the forgiveness that comes with us, with that to everyone made in the image of God, and that's everyone, we will be overcome by the fear of man. John writes this in his letter, 1 John 4, 18. This kind of love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. We say the end is near or that things are worse than they've ever been. That is chronological snobbery. It is not worse than it has ever been. And it's nowhere near as bad as it is for the church in many areas of the world today. All those in the past who've chosen Christ over and above all other affiliations and those who do it today will be persecuted. And some would argue that if the church is not persecuted in any way, then it it would seem it's not doing its job. And it's important to remember this because whenever the church has been comfortable politically, it has shrunk. Authentic Christianity takes a hit. And authentic Christianity that takes a hit grows authentic Christianity. Jesus made this so clear, I'm surprised that we still think that Christians should have an easier ride because we're Christ followers. That is so far from the biblical description of what it means to be a Christ follower. In Matthew 5, 11 to 12, God blesses, you when pe- uh, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, and all the nations will hate you because you're my followers, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. And then in John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would, they would listen to you. They will do all, sorry, if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So with that great political campaign, who's in? Well, hey, they're gonna, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Come on. And time after time, many people walked away from following Jesus at these moments. And time after time today, when political situations get difficult, when the cultural situation gets difficult, many Christians will walk away. Because that's what comes from a church that's not under pressure. That's the invitation of Jesus, though. Jesus didn't promise anything other than trouble for those who would affiliate with him. With one foot in, in, in the finite or both feet in the finite, but an, an eye towards the infinite. And I would say that the poison, the, the utter poison with which many Christians engage in, in politics is a result of forgetting our first political affiliation. British author and cultural commentator Douglas Murray says this. He said, we're going through a great crowd derangement. In public and in private, both online and off, people are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant. The daily news cycle is filled with the consequences. 
And when I look at many in the church today, and I would say, I would say the cable news, Facebook is doing a better job at disciplining the church than the church is. We're learning more about how to engage with the world by watching how the world engages with itself. We live in an age, as I said, of vilification and demonization. And as you can see in today's text, it's not new. The question specifically of how to live as a Christian, as a Christian, but ruled by secular government and in, in an environment of, of political tension. Nowhere in scripture is there a promise of a better world that comes through politics and prime ministers and presidents. How many more P's can I find? Political parties and petitions. <laughs> Nowhere does scripture say, this is how you bring it about. That'll get the right president, get the right prime minister in. That's how you will bring about the kingdom. That is not scriptural. I'll say this. If we are concerned about the kingdom of God in Canada, if we're concerned about the kingdom of God in the U.S., in the West, our pursuit would not be a Christian morality imposed by the government. It would be a, a, a desire that the church would live out the mandate that's been given us by Christ. That will change a culture. That's the opposite of what we're trying to bring about through through politics often is the opposite of what God was really excited about in the Old Testament. What he anticipated would come about. And, and the writer of, the he, of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 10. He says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. See, government imposed faith. <laughs> what does that even mean? Government imposed morality. It is it, never brought a true Christianity. How could it? It's brought about a church that may look very wide, but it's paper thin. It's not the church that's ruled and, and relegated with a, a Christian ethic that grows. It's a church that is refined by persecution. Sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a church that is, in fact, watered, as, as some writers have said, you want to see the church grow? It grows by being watered by the blood of the martyrs. And that's been the case in the past. Where persecution pushes down on the church, that's where the church grows. Does that mean we have no interest in politics or no effect on politics? Of course we should. Of course we do. We don't wait for the remedy and allow people to run around sick. Today we see the, the physical effects of, of evil in our culture, in our world. It is our job as ambassadors of the gospel to fight for justice wherever we can. We fight for justice. The church fights for justice. But ultimately, it's a, it's a change in us that brings about the remaking and the, the rethinking of culture. We don't rely on our government. We rely on the spirit of God to empower us, encourage us, enable us to go out and carry out the Great Commission. That's, you know, when people in Acts knew the apostles were coming to their town, they would say, oh no, here come those spirit-filled people who turn cities on their head because they are empowered and so in love with Jesus that they come and they bring that love and that grace and that spirit to communities and cultures. That is the work of the church and no political party or leader can do it for the church. In every encounter of politics, whether it is how we vote, 
if you vote, how you debate, who you look up to politically, all of this begins by remembering who we belong to first. It is a call to have every interaction, every interaction with those we adamantly disagree with ought to be soaked with grace, truth that reflects our deeper affiliation. That, that, that's the beauty of Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Herodians in this text. Teacher, we know how honest you are. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They ask, is it this or is it that? Well, then Jesus said in verse 17, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If it's got his face stamped on it, it's got his image on it, give it to him and give to God what belongs to him. Ultimately, whatever is stamped with God, give that to God. And his, his reply amazed them. Notice that the and that Jesus gives them, give this to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. The and of Jesus intends to cancel the or of his questioners. Is it this or that? It's that and this. They are not alternatives. They are harmonizations. Our obligation to God covers every other obligation. And by placing both in their, in their true relation, we see both of them rightly. Fundamentally under everything is that we belong to God first. That with the image of Caesar, that with the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar, but that with the image of God belongs to God. Do you recognize that the image of God in you calls you to give your life in payment to him? That's what God is saying, give what belongs to Caesar to him and give what belongs to God to God. And by the way, you are all stamped with the image of God. And so is every person you want to debate with on Facebook. Every person you vilify and demonize is made in the image of God. And as James writes in his letter, you cannot say you worship God and then curse those who've been made in his image. R.C. Lenski, who wrote a commentary on this passage, he said this, he said, our obligations to God are the whole of life. Those to the state, one part of this whole. Although church and state are separate in the way indicated, there is no gulf between them. They are not like two watertight compartments. The church will always put conscious, namely as governed by God, into our relation to the state. So yeah, we invest in politics. We have to invest in politics. We should be upset by injustice. We should fight for justice, but we do this as those redeemed. We do this as citizens of an eternal, untouchable city so we don't have to get anxious. We do it with an allegiance first and foremost to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who rules with grace and justice and love and forgiveness. And thus we as, as ambassadors of his kingdom ought to interact with the world that way. Interact with the world that he aims to redeem. Amen? <laughs> In the church, we practice... And remember our first allegiance. We, we make a political proclamation when we take communion together. Aha, uh -huh, you never thought about that, did you? 
When we take communion together, we are proclaiming our first allegiance. We are saying our truest sustenance, how we frame our, our past, our present, and our future is all caught up in the person of Christ, is all caught up in the historical fact of his life, death, and resurrection. So things can come and go, but he is Lord of the living and the dead. Governments can come and go, but he rules over all things seen and unseen. That whether I am living or whether I am dead, he is Lord over all. That's what we proclaim when we take communion together. And as, as we often talk about in this church, throughout the week, you are given a liturgy. You are being taught that you ought to be angry about, oh, everything. Right? Not just disagree, you need to be angry. I, I don't know how we have the strength to go on anymore. I mean, I used up all my anger on Monday. What do I even have left? But as we take communion, we're declaring that, that, that our, our present and our future are secure so we don't have to get caught up in those kinds of things. That we can engage without our whole heart and mind and soul being overtaken by them because we're secure. So as we take communion right now, we're going to take bread. And this is the oldest worship tradition in the church given to us by Christ himself. We're going to take bread. And Jesus said, whenever you eat bread together as my disciples, I want you to remember that my, that bread represents my body that was given for you. Nobody took it from Jesus. Scripture tells us very, very straightforwardly. Jesus told us, told his disciples, no one takes my life. I give it up freely. So when we take bread together as his followers, we remember that he did that for us as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. And how we do it here, we take the bread and we dip it in a cup. And Jesus said, whenever you take the cup, I want you to remember that my, my blood was spilt as a payment for the sins of humanity. And so as we take this, we are declaring not only this historical fact and remembering the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, we're not only remembering that we know where this story is going so we can take this with confidence and face this week with confidence, but we also remember that as bread and, and wine and, and drink sustain us, so Christ sustains us here and now. And we do that. We take the body as the body because if we want to survive as a church politically, if we want to survive in our workplace as a Christ follower, if we want to survive in school as a Christ follower who lets people know their first declaration of allegiance, we do so as a body that prays for each other, that encourage each other, encourages each other, and we remember that we are walking together. Nothing that Paul writes, with the exception of maybe three letters in the New Testament, nothing that is written in the New Testament is meant for an individual faith. It is meant to be lived out in community, and so we take communion together. If you're not a Christ follower, maybe it's the first time in a church, maybe you've been checking it out for a while, um, but this means nothing to you. you. You don't recognize Christ for who he said he was. Uh, you, you don't believe he lived, died, rose from dead. Then this would just be snacks to you. I would just ask that as, as the, the band leads us and the band can come up and the servers can come up. As, as, we, as we do this, you would maybe just listen to the worship that's going on and reflect on that. But I, I would ask that you don't take communion. If, if it means nothing to you, just allow those around you who would like to, to take communion. And how we do communion here is this. Um, we'll come down both these sides. We'll have gluten-free bread on this side, regular bread on this side. And as you come down, you can, you can take from the bread, dip in the cup. And then here you'll veer to the left and there's stairs that make their way up there. And here you can go to the right and do it that way. Let me pray. And there's no rush. When you feel ready, you can come down and let's take communion together. God of grace. We thank you that we can remember through communion, we can remember 
uh, through your word, be reminded that because we, we declare you King of kings and Lord of lords, that because we declare that we belong to you first and foremost, kingdoms can come and go. Political parties can come and go. Themes, cultural themes of the day can come and go, but they cannot touch. They cannot move the foundation on which we stand. Jesus, you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You are the defeater of sin and death. And so we find our life in you. We find our greatest joy in you, our greatest hope in you. And God, maybe for some of us, before we come up to take communion, maybe we just need to take a few seconds in silence to confess to you the way that we've got all caught up in the anger and the poison and the vilification and the demonization of those who are made in the image of God. Whether they be the political leaders themselves, as, as far off as they have gone, as many mistakes as they have made, or whether it's just those who, with a, with a view that we disagree with, God, we ask that you would forgive us. That we have worshiped you in one moment and then spew poison on those who've been created and loved by you. And God, for as long as the church has been around, we've made mistakes politically in the way we've associated ourselves, the way we've drawn a line and pushed people out. So God, I just pray that we as a congregation, we as a church would be quick, not to give up on you, but quick to show your love and your grace and your forgiveness to those we adamantly disagree with. That's the beauty of, of following you, the beauty of being united by your spirit. May that be true in this building, in this community, in this Christian community, but also in the way we interact with those around us, God. We pray this in your name. We thank you for all that this meal represents. In Jesus' name, amen.